in the first 16 verses, it's a longer passage uh, than we normally address. Uh, so if you can and you're able, would you stand with me as we read God's word and receive it uh, as his holy and precious word? Ephesians 4, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, this is the word of God hearing this. Paul says, as a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble, gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But each one of us, grace has been given as Christ appointed it. This is why the word says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to them. What does he ascended mean except also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fulfill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until each until all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attending and attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking truth in love, we will all, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the very word of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. We may be seated. Father God, thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you for the grace that you've extended to us by giving us your word, showing us your heart. We thank you, Father, for this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know if you remember this. Back in 1987, 
August of 87 was supposed to have changed the world, the entire world. There was a New Age movement that said a tremendous harmonic convergence uh, was at hand in the planets. Do you remember this? And this harmonic convergence of the planets was supposed to change everything. And if, if 144,000 of us would have held hands and hummed in unison, the harmony of the universe would have been changed. And people from other worlds and other centuries would have been able to come and join us as if that would have been a treat to them. Well, you wonder, well, you know, it was supposed to, and not just on August uh, in 87, but also all the way through 1990. the mountaintop and hold hands and sing in harmony. But we didn't. People did gather on Mount Shasta in California, at Canyon Ridge in New Mexico, Enchanted Rock in Texas, Serpent Mound in Ohio. I don't know that I would have gathered on some place called Serpent Mound, but that's up to them. Uh, the Great Pyramids of, of Egypt, and the home of King Arthur in England. They gathered. They gathered together. They held hands. They hummed. And nothing happened. This story is funny in a way, but tragic in another way, because it tells us something about human nature. We long to be connected. We long to be unified. We were created for not just independence, but for interdependence. And in the body of Christ, it is seen so beautifully when that happens. It is our desire. God created us this way. That's why those folks did that. It's because God created them for unity, and they were seeking it. Unfortunately, outside of the Holy Spirit, but... They were still seeking it. Jesus taught us this in John 17. He taught us that being unified is a reflection of not only his hopes and dreams, but is a reflection of God himself as a triune God. Jesus, the night before he's betrayed, he prays that we would be unified. Now, I don't know what you would pray for if you were in Jesus' position. Do you ever put yourself there? Every now and then I do, you know, as I read scripture, I think, what would I have done? You know that the phrase in the bracelet, what would Jesus do? What would Mike do? Well, I'm telling you, and you may join me in this if maybe there's some honesty there, but I would not be praying for others if I was about to be falsely accused, arrested, beaten, and crucified. I've never had any of those experiences, but I've had other ones that I prayed, God, rescue me. God, maybe give these disciples some courage. and oh, There would be many other prayers. But Jesus, 
the very night he is betrayed, he is praying for us. Not just those 12 disciples in the garden, but he's praying for all those followers of Christ that we would have unity, and not just so that we just get along to get along, but that we would reflect the glory of God in our unity. Just as the triune God is in unity, that we would reflect that. I think that's incredible that even to dream a dream that big. But Jesus says, I'm praying that you would be unified just as the Father and the Holy Spirit and I are in unity. Quite a high standard. Jesus prays for that unity. He says, particularly in John 17, I have given them the glory that you gave me. He says that to the Father. I gave them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me. So that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me even as I have loved them. Do you see What's going on there? Jesus is saying, I am praying for my church to be unified, not just so that there won't be discord or a lack of harmony, but that the testimony of Christ would be forthcoming. He says, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them. That's what happens when there is unity. That Christ is glorified. Jesus knew that his disciples, you and I, would never make a lasting impact on our community unless the world and this community saw unity in the church. This is a huge deal to Jesus and to the Holy Spirit who inspired the Apostle Paul to write this passage that we just read in Ephesians 4. And verse 3 in, in our passage, and if you have your Bible still open, just reorient yourself there to verse 3 for a second, because I think it sums up what God is trying to communicate. Paul tells these believers and all believers, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is speaking to us this morning. He says, always keep yourself united in the Holy Spirit and bind yourself together in peace. One of our saints who isn't here in our community anymore has moved outside the community. Norm Broomsma, righteous Norm, as he's called many times. If you ever spoke with him, and you didn't have to know him for that long, but if you ever spent more than 10 seconds with Norm, he would talk to you, and Norm is as Presbyterian as it gets. This guy is all about our Reformed theology, which oftentimes make you, makes you a little dispassionate, you know, more rigid. And, but Norm, if you spent five seconds with Norm, usually he would, he'd want to talk to you about the Holy Spirit. And it would end with him weeping in joy. I love and miss Norm. 
The apostle says, always keep yourselves united in the Holy Spirit. And bind yourself together with peace. It's not an optional request from God. And then the apostle is so gracious through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give us some practical steps. How do you do that? How how, how does that happen? Well, look again. Verses 1 through 3. Unity comes when we lead a life worthy of our calling. Verses 1 through 3, Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He's on his needs. I'm begging you, he says. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, the unity of the Holy Spirit. Leading this life worthy of calling, he breaks this down into four, four parts, very simple for us. He says this bond of peace, this unity, is a fourfold process. He says, first, humble yourself. And humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility. And then he says, I want you to be gentle with one another. Gentleness is to hold something with tenderness and with empathy. My friend, and I've quoted him before, uh, used to say, you know, you need to be gentle, like a butterfly landing with sore feet. Gentle. Be patient with one another. This word describes in the Greek waiting for a baby to be born. Now, I've never had a baby. Never personally had a baby. We have four children. Suzanne did all the heavy lifting on that one. So, but you ladies know what we men don't know, right? But I've been around pregnant women. And around month eight, week two, they're ready to get this kid out. That, that kid's got to go. I love him, but he got to go. Can't sleep, can't eat. This kid's got to go. Patience. It's that patience that a mother has to do the full work and go the full distance, even when it's uncomfortable. And then lastly, he says, bear with one another in love. What in the world could he be talking about? He's talking about when we are not perfect with one another. You have to bear with one another in love. You have to, you know, you have to carry one another. Unity comes when we lead a life worthy of the calling that Christ has called us with. This Is this not how Jesus has loved us? Is it not how Jesus has loved you? Has he not been humble with you and gentle and patient and long-suffering, forbearing with you? Yes, he has. And Paul says, let your life reflect that. Whenever we're confronted with scripture like this, we have to ask, does that describe my life? Does it describe your life, your heart, 
this morning. Unity comes when we live with these attributes in the forefront. Humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance with one another. Secondly, unity comes when we focus on our common beliefs. Notice Paul uses this phrase, one, the word one, seven times. The Hebrew recipients of this letter would have heard unity loud and clear. One body, one spirit, one glorious future. Okay, we get it. Paul says, I'm not done yet. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, in all, and through all. Do you get the picture? There's a oneness to us. Paul is driving this point home. As believers, we've got at least these seven key foundations and foundational truths that bind us together. I find it amazing what the Bible says and what the Bible doesn't say. Do you ever look at the Bible that way? What is not said here? I mean, there's so many things that Paul left out. What was he thinking? He didn't tell us how to have communion. He didn't tell us how to govern ourselves. He didn't tell us what style of music. I'm sure he meant, you know, choral music. He he didn't speak about that. He didn't even tell us what time we should come to worship. I mean, what was he thinking? What mode of baptism? Or political ideology? Or what college team to root for. He didn't say any of that stuff. He brings it down to seven essentials of the faith. The Holy Spirit, if he wanted us to have other essentials, he would have given them to us. In our denomination, we have seven essentials, and they reflect these And he's saying, major on the majors. If you want to have unity, major on the majors. And you can have personal preferences, but they cannot be brought into the body of Christ to be required and demanded of other people. That will kill unity. Martinet of Grenada, the Spanish prince was to receive the crown about 200 years ago, but I'm sure he did something to upset somebody because he was convicted of treason and thrown into prison for 33 years. And they said, you can have one thing, and what would you like? You can have one thing with you in prison. What would you like? He said, well, I think I'll take the Bible. That was a good choice. Take the Bible. You know, it takes about 71 hours, depends on how fast you read, to read the Bible. It's about how long it takes. So he had plenty of time. And in those 33 years in prison, he read through the Bible forwards and backwards, as they say, from from Genesis to maps. He read everything. And he was released. And when he was released, they found the notes that he had taken from reading the Bible And you wonder, okay, if you had 33 years just to study the Bible, what would you get out of it? 
He got things like Psalm 118, verse 8, is the middle verse of the Bible. Ezra 7.21 contains all the letters of the alphabet except the letter J. The ninth verse of the eighth chapter of Esther is the longest verse in the Bible. No word or name more than six syllables can be found in the Bible. And it went on and on like that. Trivia, trivia, trivia. 33 years of studying the greatest book of all time in all the universe, and all he got out of it was trivia. We have no evidence that he ever professed faith in Christ, that he ever knew the God of the universe who wrote this book. There's a lot of folks that are experts on Bible trivia. I remember in seminary and even in Bible school, you knew those people because they wanted to argue about everything. And they were, they were never wrong about anything. We have seven essentials in the EPC. And the Word of God gives us seven essentials. There's a oneness to us in these things, and there is a broadness to us in other things. We say in the EPC that we have, in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Thirdly, this passage, verses 7 through 12, unity comes when we use our gifts, when we serve one another. Notice the purpose of these gifts. Again, in verse 12, let your eyes fall again on the Word of God and see that it is to equip God's people to do His work, that's God's work, and build up the church. Why has the Holy Spirit gifted you with spiritual gifts? It is so that you can pour yourself back into this church. Have you ever seen the Redwoods out in California? A couple years ago, Suzanne and I went out there to see our daughter in San Francisco and then went up to Sequoia National Park and Kings Canyon and, and saw those magnificent trees. I mean, they're, they're, they're just ginormous. Many of them reach uh, heights of more than 300 feet. And a lot of them are older, are more than 2,500 years old. They were little, little saplings before Jesus was born. Ancient. How they? And they've, they, forest fires have come and gone. And, and how did they survive? You know. You'd think that a tree to survive 2,500 years would have incredibly deep roots, right? I mean, tornadoes have come through, forest fires have come through, the winds have come through, and they haven't blown over. You'd think that they would have incredibly deep roots, but they don't. Amazingly, their roots only go down four to six feet. That's it. So how is it that they survive? Well, they survive because of this unique way that God created them. Their roots are intertwined and connected for hundreds of feet. And sometimes trees grow up so close together that they become one tree. And you can see all that. When we become interconnected, interdependent, when 
You need someone else and they need you. That's when unity really begins to, no pun intended here, take root. And there is an interconnectedness. And lastly, not only should we and we must use our gifts to build one another up in the church, but lastly, unity comes when we decide to no longer live like children, he says. Verses 13 through 16, Paul takes careful count to say, I want you to not be like a child who is easily swayed or like a bobber on the sea that is tossed back and forth by whatever wind is blowing. Paul says we need to grow up. And he lists four ways. He says you need to hold on to the truth in love. Don't listen to gossip. Don't listen to unsubstantiated rumors. Listen to the word of God. And then he says you need to put Christ at the center of your life. Don't put yourself in the center. And don't put other people in the center. Put only Christ in the center. He says, serve where you are called to serve. Not necessarily where you 